John chapter 5 focuses upon a healing that Jesus did and the aftermath. The beginning of this chapter, Jesus heals a man that had been lame for 38 years. And with a word, this man is able to walk. Jesus tells him, take up your mat and go. So the man rolls up his little straw mat, picks it up, and walks without aid. The problem is, some of the religious leaders see him walking. They see him carrying his straw mat on the Sabbath. And they are mad because he is breaking the law of God. How dare he carry a mat on the Sabbath? I don't care if it's been 38 years since he walked. That doesn't matter. So they ask him, who told you to do this? The man says, honestly, I don't know. This man told me, take up my mat and walk. And so I did. So the man runs into Jesus later. Then he goes back to the religious leaders and says, oh, by the way, it was this guy named Jesus. He told me to take up my mat and walk on the Sabbath. So the religious leaders find Jesus. And they think they've cornered him. Always remember, when anybody thinks they've got Jesus cornered, they're the ones in the corner. Because Jesus looks at them and he says, whatever I see the Father doing, I'm doing. Now in that one claim, he claims to be God and to be acting on God's authority. And the authority of God can direct people on what they need to do. Now Jesus is continuing this emphasis on His divine authority. He wants us to know that when we read of Him, we're reading of God. That when we, we see Jesus doing these things through the words of the Scripture, we're seeing God do them, for Jesus is God in the flesh. So at verse 25, He picks up His teaching by saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Bow with me and let's pray. Oh Lord, Your Word is truth. And we need that. We need Your life-giving truth but Lord we come confessing that often our ears are stopped up our hearts are hard our necks refuse to bend so we ask for your spirit by your power and your grace Lord to give us ears to hear to soften our hearts and Lord to work that we would not be a stiff necked people who refuse to listen to you Grant us these things, Father, that you may be honored and that the world may see that Jesus is your Son and He is the giver of life. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. There's a general statement that's true for all of us. We want to live. That's pretty much a given, isn't it? 
We want to live, we want to experience life, and we want to do as much as we can to, to elongate that life. It's very interesting when you look historically at the attempts that have been made to, to stretch life as far as possible. Doc claims that promise, eat this diet and you can live to be 120 years old. And you know what has happened to every one of those plans? What has happened to the founder of them? They've died. One such example is a man by the name of Jerome Rodell. He was the founder of a publishing empire dedicated to health and longevity. In 1971, he was a guest on the Dick Cavett Show. Now, Dick Cavett was a precursor to Johnny Carson and to the late-night talk shows. And this man, Jerome Rodell, sits down with Dick Cavett. And at the age of 72, he makes the claim that his diet will make everyone live to be 100 years old. And then Mr. Rodell made a snoring sound and died in the chair next to Dick Cavett. That show never aired, by the way. I mean, what do you do with that? It's not good for ratings. We recognize there's a limit to what we can do. We desire life. We want life. We want long life. We want to live forever. But death is a reality we can't avoid. Death is an enemy. Conquered, yes, but still fighting. And I'm convinced that just as each one of us wants and desires long life, we desire more than just existence. We want to really live. You see, there's a difference between living and existing. Like William Wallace in Braveheart once said, every man dies, but not everyone really lives. You see, it's very possible for us to go through life just existing so that we touch, but we never really feel. So that we see, but we never really behold. So that we hear, but never really listen. I believe that each and every one of us want more than just long life. We want to really live. We want those days to be filled with joy and satisfaction. We want to know the fullness of a life that is lived. We want to know joy and delight. But the same problem that has happened in our physical being where death intervenes has happened to us spiritually. Our joy is curtailed. Because of sin. Our fullness of life quickly spills out because of sin. In fact, the scripture goes as far as to say this. That you and I are dead. And the problem is, is that a dead person cannot change their condition. If a dead person is to be revived, that means some outside force must act upon them. You and I cannot reach our own revivification. We cannot restore life to our bodies or our souls. We need someone else to do that, and that is the glorious good news of the gospel. One has come who can give life to us, not just spiritually, but also physically. And notice what he says in verse 25. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear it will live. He promises life. And notice the span of it. This hour is coming and is now here. So he is saying there is a future life, but there is also a present life that he gives. And notice the means through which this life comes. The voice of the Son of God. How does he give life? His very voice. Now our voices are very limited in our ability and power to elicit change. 
We can maybe speak deeply and get someone's attention, or we can speak softly and say, you better stop that. But when it comes right down to it, we are very limited in our ability to make others do anything. Every time I start to feel a little bit uh, overly confident that I can do certain things, the Lord has a way of bringing me back to reality that I'm very limited. And often He uses the most odd ways of doing that. With all the rain, one of the problems we've had is that when we try to take our Australian Shepherd lady out, she's a lady. She doesn't like to go out in the rain. So I start feeling very self-confident. I can do, man, I can accomplish this. Lady, come outside. Come on. Let's go. And she sits and stares at me as if I'm an idiot. Come on, lady. Let's go. She's even said no. And I recognize that in all my ability to accomplish things and all my rhetorical skills, I can't get a dog to walk out the door. Such is our power, isn't it? Not so with God. Our God speaks and the universe comes into existence. Our God speaks and dead, dry bones gain life. Our God speaks and the storm stops. Our God speaks and the dead come to life. Because notice, he says, those who hear will live. That means those who are hearing it are dead. He enables the dead to hear and the dead to live. And notice this power is the voice of the Son of God. This is a claim to divinity. Jesus is referring to himself. That if the voice of God gives life and Jesus, as the Son of God, speaks and he gives life, he must be God and notice the timing of this. This hour's coming and now is now here. He points to the future as well as the present. Jesus came to give life to those who are spiritually dead. You see, we are indeed dead and separated in our walk with God. Now, we can still move and talk, but you know what? There is an emptiness within us where our spirits are cut off from God. My sweetener of choice is the yellow one that I use. I brought a packet today because you never know when a cup of coffee may appear. But here's the problem. Every now and then as I get my little yellow packet out, and I'm refusing to say the name so as not to be accused of advertising, it's Splenda, and there'll be one that's empty. There, this is perfectly sealed. I have not tampered with it in any way, but it's empty. Somehow it got through quality control. I thought, man, doesn't that describe our life apart from God? We can give the appearance that everything is good and life is grand and we are living it to the max, but inside there's nothing. We're empty. The Bible calls it dead. In our trespasses and sins, we are dead, separated from God. But notice Jesus said that He has come to give life and to give it now. So here's the now aspect. He has come to give life now and to give it to us spiritually so that we are reborn, we are made new, that the spiritually dead come to life. The first clue to this is in the phrase, the hour. And here we see this happening. An hour is coming and is now here. In the Gospel of John, the phrase, the hour, or hour, refers to his death, resurrection, and ascension. So he is saying this hour is coming, his death, resurrection, ascension, by which we can gain life. 
How does that happen? Because Jesus took our place, dying the death we deserve, taking the wrath of God that we have earned, and taking our condemnation upon himself so that as he dies, we can have life. And the glorious good news of the gospel is this. He rose from the dead so that by faith in him, he has not only taken our death, but we can share in his life and be made alive. That's the gospel. Jesus paid it all. He paid our penalty before God. And not only did he do that, but notice he says, verse 26, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So not only in his death, resurrection, and ascension has he bought for us, purchased, and redeemed us from death, he has the authority to give life. Now, think about what he's saying here. The Father has life in himself. What in the world is that about? What he is saying is that there is no one that gave God life. God has always existed. God is the source of life. You and I are contingent beings. What that means is you and I are dependent upon things to live. Let's do a little quiz. How many of you in here need oxygen to live? Most of you, 90%. All right, let's go to step two. How many of us need food to live? Not just enjoy, but to live. Okay, okay, still the majority. I'd say we're about 95%. Final question. How many of us need water? Okay, okay, still high, still high. Okay, you get the point? You take away any one of those and what happens to us? We don't fare too well. We are dependent. We are contingent upon those things. God needs nothing to exist. His existence is within himself. No one gave God life. No one sustains the life of God. He is life. He is the source of life. And notice once again, this is that claim to divinity. That just as God has life in himself, he has given the Son life within himself. That just as God is eternally self-existent life, the Son also. And when he says granted, it's a way of saying that even in his humanity, he can give life. His divinity has not been diminished. He still has life within himself, even as a Fully God, fully man walking the earth. And because he is the source of life, he can give life. In 1908, the first Model T rolled off the assembly line in Michigan. Model Ts were everywhere, on the road. Changed the, the culture of America. Irrevocably changed it. man was driving his Model T down the road in Michigan, and his Model T stopped. Couldn't get it started again. Now, this is a point they're still new. There's not a mechanic. Didn't get good cell phone coverage in around 1920. Didn't know what to do. Car pulls up behind him. Guy gets out, notices the car stopped, and says, could I help you out here? He goes, yeah, if you know how to fix this thing, I'd appreciate it. Otherwise, I'm going to have to walk and get some help. Guy says, let me take a look at it. He opens the side, because remember, this is the roller thing on the side. Starts tinkering around, says to the guy, okay, go up there and crank it. Let's see if we can get it started. Starts up. The owner of the broken vehicle is amazed. How did you do that? That was incredible. How did you know to do that? The guy says, well, I ought to know how to make it. I, I built the car. My name's Henry Ford. If I built it, I ought to know how to fix it. God has given life. He is the source of life. He knows how to change us. He knows how to redeem us. He has enabled us by faith, through His grace, that we might be saved. Now, But now there's a flip side to this. Look at verse 27. Not only does He give life, because He gives life, He has the authority to execute judgment. He gives life because he is the Son of God and he has the authority to execute judgment. Now, Jesus himself is the standard of judgment. 
when you get into verse 27, that phrase, because he is the Son of Man, reveals him as the standard of judgment as well as the one who has the right to judge. Verse 23, look back up at it just a few verses earlier. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In other words, to get to God, we must go through Christ. Jesus will say this with no equivocation whatsoever in John 14, 6. Therefore, Jesus becomes the standard of judgment. The standard of judgment when you and I stand before God will be this. How did we respond to Jesus? Did we believe? Did we reject? Did we try to play both ends against the middle to say, well, he's a good teacher and I like some of the things he said, but the divinity, no, we can't do that. Verse 24, he reminds us that if we hear his words and believe him who sent him, we have eternal life. Jesus is the standard of judgment. That phrase, son of man, points to three reasons that he can judge. The son of man, first of all, is a divine title from Daniel chapter 7. Where the son of man appears before the throne of God and God invests him with divine authority. It's also a human title. That's the second thing. As I said a week or so ago, the Son of God means one has the characteristics of God. To say Son of Man means that one has the characteristics of man, humanity. Because he is one of us, flesh and blood, he has the authority to judge. It also means the revealer of God. The Son of Man is one who reveals who God is. Jesus speaks that he has come into the world that we may see who God is. So think about this. The one who judges us knows all. Jesus has already demonstrated that several times. John chapter 1, Nathanael comes to Jesus. and Before Nathanael says a word, Jesus says to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael says, How in the world do you know that? He knew Nathanael before he ever met him. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus tells her her whole life. He knows. You talk about something that would freak you out is to meet somebody that begins telling you everything you've ever done, telling you your motivations, what you intended, and what you wanted to say but really didn't say. Jesus. Now that leaves us in a pretty bad spot until we realize he's also fully man. This God can look at me and he can look at you and say, I understand. He can sympathize with us. He can truly say, I know what it is to be tempted. He can say, I know what it is to be tired and worn out and at the end of your rope. I know what it is. I can empathize with you. So we look at our judge and we see compassion. We see mercy. We see truth. We see grace. Because he is the son of God and the son of man. The Sixth Amendment, you and I as American citizens are guaranteed the right to a trial by jury. A jury of our peers. The Son of Man means that our judge is also one of us while being fully divine. And that's why he can give us a promise. Verse 28, he says, don't marvel at this. All right, the this refers to everything he's just said. It's almost like he's saying, if you think that's amazing, you've not seen anything yet. The hour is coming. Now he's looking future. 
All right? The hour is now here where he will give spiritual life by faith in him. We can be born again. But now he looks to the future where he says the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and live. He's looking to that day when Jesus Christ returns and the grave gives up its prisoners. And notice once again, it is the voice of Jesus that will make this happen. You see this power demonstrated, a teaser, when he walked the earth. Jesus is walking and he's coming with the disciples into a small town called Nain. And as he's walking in, there's a funeral procession coming out. They're getting ready to bury a young man and his mother, a widow, is burying her child. And you can only imagine in your mind hearing the wails and the weeps, the groanings of a mother about to bury her son. Jesus stops the procession. Walks next to the funeral pyre and says, Son, get up. And the dead stands up. Another time, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd and a man by the name of Jairus. He's an authority in the temple, a mover and a shaker, a CEO type. Comes to Jesus, dressed in his Armani suit, hands in his pockets saying, My baby girl is sick. Will you come and heal her? Jesus says, I will. And as they're making their way to the house, messengers come. Jairus, it's too late. Your daughter's dead. I have no doubt that at that moment, Jairus ripped his shirt and cries out. And I can see in my mind's eye, Jesus coming up next to him and putting his arm around him and saying, Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Let's go. They get into the house and Jesus bends down beside the body laid out. The body turning blue and cold. And he whispers in her ear in Aramaic, Talitha Kumai. It's a term of endearment. Little girl, get up. Little girl, get up. And the Bible says she got up and started making them a meal. That's Jesus. There's Jesus beside the graveside of Lazarus. John points out Lazarus had been dead four days. That's a way of saying Lazarus was dead, dead. Roll the stone away. Jesus, he, in the King James, he stinketh. Roll the stone away. And then he utters, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus hops out because his legs are bound with a dead man's clothes. <laughs> And Jesus says, take those off. He doesn't need them now. That's what our God does. All those things are coming attractions of the day when Jesus Christ says, my children come forth. And on that day, the graves will open and this mortal body will put on immortality. This corruptible body will put on incorruption. This perishable body will put on that which is imperishable. And he's saying that will happen because we've seen it already in the life of Jesus Christ. He says, that hour's to come. Death will not have final say. You and I have stood beside too many gravesides. Every one of us in here have been impacted by death in some way. We know the pain. As believers, we should look at that pain and grief and at the same time say, as we grieve to say, but this for the believer is not the end. And because it's not the end, we need to take, take notice of verse 29. 
that resurrection day will lead to judgment. Remember, Jesus has the authority to judge. It's His right. It's easy to read verse 29 and to begin reading into it the idea that all of a sudden now Jesus is teaching salvation by works. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let me be as clear as I can. This is not teaching salvation by works. Look back just a few chapters to chapter 3. So what are these works? These works that lead to life. We have to be careful here. Otherwise we can fall into this this maze of thinking you've got to be good enough. You've got to earn it. And we can't be. We're spiritually dead. We can't be good enough. John chapter 3 verse 21. Listen to what is, is written. But whoever does. That's a doing word. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. So what is the, the work that one does that is good? They come to the light. The light is Jesus. The good work is coming to Jesus. So that, so as you come to Jesus, what do you see? It may be clearly seen that His works have been carried out in God. He comes to Jesus to demonstrate that any good that has been done has been done because of God. John 6, 28 and 29 states that the work, God's work is to believe in Jesus. That's a way of saying the work that God accomplishes within us is to believe in Christ. So in John 5, when he says those who have done good, we must understand John's definition of good. It is believing in Jesus Christ. It's coming to the light. So what is evil? Rejecting the light. Evil is refusing to believe in Jesus refusing to confess him you see remember Jesus is the standard of judgment on the final day the dividing line will be did you believe in Jesus or did you reject him those who believe have a life of resurrection life those who reject face condemnation the judgment of God that's why the decision we make now is crucial it has eternal ramification so I ask you today have you believed do you know the life of which Jesus is speaking this morning I extend an invitation to you that if you have never placed your faith in Jesus I invite you to do that just a moment I'll be standing in the front as well as Pastor Nathan and if you want to come and talk with us we will be here to do that and it may be this because Nathan and I are on the same page we don't want to rush through talking about the plan of salvation it may be where the Holy Spirit gives you courage to step out today and you come forward and take me by the hand or Nathan and you say, I, I want to know what it means to be saved. Don't be surprised if we say, let's set aside time later in this week so we can sit down and talk about it. It's that important. Now you may come and say, I'm ready to believe. I'm turning from my sins. And if you're adamant and like, yes, yes, I'm ready, we're not going to turn that away. But consider this carefully. 
consider it. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. I want to ask Nathan to join me here in the front.